0: I'll drink to that where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala,
0: and here's our show today. Nicholas Gu of Chateau, Pichon. Longville Comtesse de Lalande on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you?
1: Yeah, thank you. So,
0: That's you great. recently took over Pichon Lalande. Yeah, it
1: was uh, late director. 2012. Uh, huge project. I'm very honored. You know, Pichon Lalande is part of the history of wine, part of the history of Bordeaux. It's an ancient vineyard. I mean, first planted in the 17th century. Um, when it was just one single vineyard, and uh, in 1850, a father, Mr. de Pichon-Longueville, uh, decided to, to share the vineyard in two parts, between the two sons, this is what we call now Pichon-Baron or Pichon-Longueville, and the three daughters, Pichon-Comtesse or Pichon-Lalande. And uh, since then, the ownerships are separated totally. And um, as for us at Pichon-Lalande, uh, Rutherer uh, champagne and that means the Rousseau family is the fourth family owning this vineyard. And they took over in 2006. They purchased the majority share. Exactly. So how did you get there? You studied enology in Bordeaux. Uh, well, I studied first enology and uh, precisely genetics applied to enology with Professor Denis Dubourdieu. It was in mid-90s. So uh, I'm afraid it's already quite 20 years ago. And that was very unique experience and um, well I've been back to school a few years uh, after to go back to agronomics and wine production something much more I should say applied directly to the wine production and the winemaking so that means that I've studied also at the um, agronomic school in Montpellier and there I also learned winemaking so before it was more theoretical, and then in Montpellier it was a little more Exactly. Practical. So a complementary um, profile. And you worked for the French government for a bit. Yeah, a bit. For an agriculture ministry on files linking different ministries like agriculture, environment, and health uh, with problematics like chemistry and uh, crop protection. So it was very interesting because I think that we all have made a lot of efforts on the quality, the precision of crop protection. And today, I think that even if there are uh, different ways to protect crop, like organic, like biodynamic, like l'utre as we say in French, the question of sustainable development is a kind of obsession for everyone. And we're all citizens as winemakers, uh, as managers, and we're all very careful with that kind of problem because... We are talking about the future of agriculture, future of our terroir, future of the earth. So everything we, we, we try to make and try to, to understand today is made for the next generations. So uh, we have a responsibility.
0: So you did short stints working at Chateau Aubryon and also at Chateau Margaux.
1: Yeah. I trained myself uh, when I, I went back to school in Montpellier. Uh, I trained myself at Aubrion, then at Chateau Margaux. Well, there are very good schools, as you can imagine. And for me, it was, uh, um, it was obviously the places where I had to learn from the, the best people in Bordeaux. What do you think you learned at that period of time? The precision, the balance we can try to reach between the scientism and the empirism. Because we are all talking about agriculture. Afterwards, So we are very dependent on the weather, the global environment, the climate, and so on. Microclimate, macroclimate, everything. And the knowledges that those people gave to me were very important even today. I think many times about everything I've learned from them. And um, generally speaking, I've learned from those two beautiful estates that there are no little details or less important details everything is important from the very uh, beginning of the plantation to the marketing skills and obviously the winemaking everything has to be under control or if it's not under control we have to considering each step in the process of i mean it's the management of a firm but very special because we're about to produce wine Every year is different because of our climate in Bordeaux, because we are uh, around the 45th parallel. Every year is different. The climate is different. So every year we have to make a new wife from quite crash down. And this is also the magic in in our job. I mean, every year we have to make a new baby. There is no recipe to apply. And that's the fascinating side of of this job, which is not a job but a patient. So in
0: 2007... you assumed a directorship role at Monroe's in San Estef. And how did that come about?
1: I was looking for a, a job as a technical director. And, uh, uh, well, I, I've been in touch with Jean-Bernard Delmas. Because uh, he used to be at Aubryon. That's it. He, he has made uh, something like um, 45 different vintages of Aubryon uh, since 1961. And then um, it was the... CEO um, of Chateau Montrose since 2006 when the Wig brothers bought the estate and uh, so we were in touch and uh, he hired me as a technical director and I I was 32 years old and uh, it was a lot for me and uh, but it was, I mean such an honor to work with him and for such a label like Chateau Montrose. What was he like in person? He's a nice guy, a very nice man and uh, I've learned So many things from him every single day. I mean, because he knows everything about the wine industry, about winemaking. And uh, he's someone very efficient in terms of taking decisions and um, trying to be the most efficient to make the best wine as possible. And, um, well, when I talk about the balance between knowledgeable things and empiricism, it's exactly the kind of person that is aware to those concepts, which are so uh, sensitive, so touchy, but that you have to feel if you want to improve in this, uh, in this industry.
0: And what did you take up as your task in 2007 in San Estef? What were your goals?
1: I think that the main point that Montrose was, and is still very famous for uh, making full-body, massive, masculine wines. I think that we could we could, as all of us and everywhere in the world, but I mean, we could improve a bit the quality of wine. And um, the main point was to analyze where were the the skills or the tasks we could improve. With the technical team in place, and thanks to its experience at Montrose, we, we tried to, uh, to improve every step of the winemaking process. And um, coming from a, a very firm and massive wine to something probably a bit more refined, elegant. And obviously, when you know the, the footprint of terroir in saint and in Moroz, uh, particularly speaking, it was not that obvious. But that's why it was so fascinating. I mean, so I can remember uh, making my, my first, my first vintage, well, the 2007 at Montrose with the Cellar Master. We talked a lot about the pump overs, the duration of pump overs, just to try to reach the balance between this very vintage was not a, the kind of vintage for which you, you have to over overextract the wines, you know? So um, I think it was this vintage was very important for both of us to understand how the other one can work and the kind of the, the style of, of the wine we want to. Uh, get Uh, then we had the 2008 which is a vintage i like a lot because to me it's a kind of uh the little brother of 2010 everything is in good concentration very balanced very straight very classic left bank style wine because i
0: don't hear much about eights in the market
1: yeah the main problem of of oh eight well he has Two main problems. First, uh, we had to release it during the very crisis, um, financial, financial crisis. crisis. So uh, so it was a treat. Uh, but talking about the wine, the main problem of 2008 is 09 and 10 because Think everybody right knows about 09 and 10 and we will we have all forgotten the 08. And um, But we'll be back because 09 and 10 are, are made for the next 50 years or more. And we'll open the bottles in uh, 15 to 20 years. The 08 will be more. Well, approachable earlier than them. So uh, we'll discover it in, uh, in a few years now, in three to five years. And it's brilliant wine, I'm sure. Because when I look at Montrose from an earlier period, say
0: the famous 1990, I think of a big wine that has a little bit of what I might call rustic tannins and maybe a little Britannomyces, maybe a little sweaty saddle kind of horse leather character to it. Coming out of that era... That was also a wine that was rated 100 points. Coming out of that era, were you trying to make a little bit more of an elegant wine that was still
1: big, less rustic? This is all the balance we are talking about. I mean, we're still in Saint-Esteve. You have to respect the history. You have to respect the style of the wines made there. You have to respect the terroir, even if the terroir is much more powerful than us. But when you have this obsession and this conviction that all the great wines are first made in the vineyard that means that consequently once your harvest is made in the cuvery you don't have to change the style of the wine so i'm not a very uh i'm not very fond of technologies used in the cuvery my conviction is that once you have a beautiful first material coming from the vineyard everything is done then during the vanification, you have to work very precisely, very smoothly, gently in terms of extraction. And this is the best way to express the terroir, the personality, the character of the terroir. But in the same time, trying not to over-extract to avoid rough green bitter tannins. And that was, I think, the the goal, we, we wanted to reach uh, at Montrose. And because we learned how to work together for the 07 and the 08 vintage, then we got the fabulous 09 then 10 vintages. And we were used to work together. So uh, I mean, the, the coincidence of at last having learned how to work together and having to make the 09 and 10. that was such a pleasure to, to make beautiful wines. And I just hope that in my the rest of my career, that means thirty more years, I guess, I will have the opportunity to make wines like O9 and Ten. But stylistically they're a little different, nine and ten. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the inner quality of the wines of both O9 and Ten is, is the same. But they are different. O9 is much more not new world style, because we're still in Bordeaux, but it's very flashy, not jammy, but very flashy, very exotic, aromatically very expressive, even powerful. And the 10 is much more, like I said about the 08, is much more a classic, classic bottle style wine. I love the idea of an arrow. You know where it comes from, you know where it goes. It's very straight, very precise. And even if we could have made some not austere, but tough wines, of tasted like tough wines in the first years of aging, we all know that the balance and the aromatic evolution. Will come with the aging in bottles. So um, to me, I'm much more a ten vintage guy. It's perfect wine, perfect wine. I, I don't know until which former vintage we have to come back to find that that level of quality. Is it eighty two? Is it sixty one? Or probably fifty nine?
0: Um, I don't know. I was I kind know. of thinking eighty nine because you know it has the ripeness but also the
1: freshness. And I made this. Comparison between, in the one hand, 89 and 10, and in the other hand, 90 and 09. Sure. And I have this feeling that now the 89 pass over the the 90. That's my sense most of the time. And this is probably how we could consider the 09 and 10 will age. Same way. But are we thinking now that the wines are maybe a little bit more approachable, younger because
0: of refined tannins and maybe some global warming, like in general in Bordeaux? That's for sure.
1: But uh, the global warming will help us to uh, to ripe or to mature the late varietals, the, the late grapes like the, the cabs, Frank and above all Cabernet Sauvignon. The question is, because of more sugar in the juices, so consequently by fermentation, more alcohol in the wines, what will be the balance? Uh, will we be able to keep this balance, this freshness, which such characterizes the wines made in, in France? Uh, this is the main point. Reaching the maturity, the optimum maturity, that means the, the maturity of tannins, of seeds, is one thing. Keeping this balance and this subtility and this elegance so obvious is another point.
0: Does that have something to do with the freshness level in the finished wine with how long it's aged in wood? Because, you know, where you are now, Pichon Lalande, you vary from 18 to over two years, 18 months to 25 months of time in wood. Does that vary with the vintage when you're trying to keep something a little bit more fresh?
1: Well, first, the freshness is about not picking up the grapes too late. It's, first of all, the the very point, because once you have reached the phenolic maturity, the optimum maturity, the risk you can take is to lay the grapes on feet and to let the acidity decreasing a lot. Then the lack of acidity is the worst to get if you want to keep the freshness. Then after, during the aging in barrel, the freshness is still the same. But if on top of a lack of freshness, because of a lack of acidity, you add too much tannins, you add too much hood aromas, well, your wine is absolutely disbalanced and this is not the kind of wine I want to make. And thank God, I think this is not the, the kind of wine that I've made since today.
0: So you moved to pichon Lalande. and how did that come about? How did the move from Montrose to pichon Lalande evolve for you?
1: I was looking for a new, um, a new challenge to deal with. And um, when I left uh, Montrose, it was for a summer of 2012 and um i've been in, in touch with frédéric rousseau the owner of ruderer champagne and of uh, pichon Lalande, and um well he, he proposed to me general manager um job for their estates in bordeaux that means in in saint and in Pauillac. well you can figure out that was a lot for <laughs> for me once again um but i feel so happy and um uh, very impressed, I must tell you. Very impressed because I, I'm not from Bordeaux. My my family is not in the in a business at all. Uh, Pichon Lalande is such a name. I mean, Montrose was something, but Pichon Lalande it's it's something bigger, bigger. The kind of of labels which are that famous all over the world because of people before us that traveled a lot to talk about their wines, and and of course because of the consistency in the regular regularity of, of the wines made at Pichon Lalande. So uh, there are a few labels like this one because I mean, there is a name recognition factor with Pichon Lalande. The label, the, the name. I mean, the, few The, other history, really. uh, uh, the house. Uh, so many people in the world I, I I can meet all over the world that uh, have been invited to uh, for lunch or dinner or for tastings at Pichon Lalande. Long before me, <laughs> I mean. Uh, so uh, they, they quite know much, much more things about Pichon Lalonde than myself. So uh, I'm very impressed. When did you arrive there? It was in November 2012.
0: And what's it been like working with the Rotor family wine
1: estates? It's very comfortable. I, I, I don't know if it's correct, but uh, uh, they know everything about wine because this is their only business. They have wineries in California, in Portugal, in France, in many beautiful appellations, and they know everything about the winemaking, the vine growing. So um, it's a very clear and easy discussion with them about everything, considering the the life of an estate. Like if you say we need to prune this back, they kind of get what you're saying right away. Uh, absolutely, and the question is is not, uh, but why are uh, uh, do you feel compelled to make the pruning? No. The question is, wh- why this way? Uh, and it's an exchange of point of views. And even if they are a bit different, so we can make the decision together, it's a way to be part of the renewal of uh, a winery. So uh, it's very interesting for me.
0: So at the same time that you're the managing director at Pichon Lalande, you're also in charge of Chateau de Pez and Haute Bouchersort, which are both in San Estef. Yes, that's it. And you had had experience in Santa Step and Montrose, so that could carry over to those two other properties.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a good way to keep a, a, a foot in in Santa Step Vineyard. Uh, we have there about one hundred and fifty acres vineyard, so so it's a large one. Pez is famous, you know, in, in Bordeaux and now I think all over the world. But we have to, to promote it more. Uh, but it's a um, a famous estate because I think it's the most ancient vineyard in Saint-Esteve. People in Bordeaux very well know this this vineyard because it's a very balanced wine. Our blends are very quite 50-50 Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot. So that means those wines express the personality of Saint-Esteve terroir. It's very earthy, it's very black fruit, licorice, or things like that. But at the same time, Thanks to the amount of Merlot we use for the blend, we reach a balance which is very charming, very expressive, very elegant. So uh, it's a good way to please a large number of people.
0: Because uh, there are other estates and Santa staff that use a fair amount of Merlot, Costa Estronel being one of them, I believe. Yes. Yeah.
1: yes. The question is, which amount of Merlot in the vineyard we, we have planted? Uh, it's always... A, once again, it's a question of balance. I mean, do we have this uh, sensation that the more cab or the blend, the better they are? Is it a fashion? Is it the, the global warming? Is, it, uh, a, is the global warming a cycle? All those questions that make me think that if we want to to make the um, plantation evolving a bit, we have to do it very carefully, very um, slowly i don't want to make uh, radical decisions now that i could regret in 10 or 15 years everything we do now is made for the next 25 or 50 years so it's a, a huge responsibility considering the history of each growth so uh, we have to be very careful
0: and where exactly is oat
1: boucher's or and what is that uh obosejour is an, another vineyard just close to pez and we make their Probably much more mellow blend, um, 60% blend most of the time. So, very Santa stuff, but a bit lighter compared to Pez. Uh, not the same density. It's much easier wine to drink, or it's approachable earlier than Pez, that's for sure. But the, it's good for what it is, you know, where we, uh, it, it got it its own personality and... Um, that's all about wine. I mean, and that's why it's always a pleasure to, to, to reach consumers in New York or, uh, or in LA because we just landed from LA with the uh, Tour des Derives uh, group and uh, to reach them and to t- talk to you about Hobo Séjour because it's quite unnecessary to talk about Pichon Lalande, even if I want to, to promote the, the brand. But they know everything about it. When you talk about Hobo Séjour, they ask, And my only answer is, okay, just taste it. We'll talk about it then after. Do not drink the label. Afterwards, you quite don't know it. Just drink the wine. Let's talk about it together. And it's very good value. And uh, it's a a wine which uh, people like a lot.
0: What is the perception of the states that you represent in the market? I mean, is it difficult to sell Bordeaux in these times or is
1: it easy? Talking about Bordeaux is easy. Because it's talking about history and because Bordeaux is very famous, thanks to the wine. Many countries in the world are about to produce beautiful wines today. And consumers have a large choice of very good wines produced in every country of this world. But what we try to do is to explain to people, for example, here in the US, which is uh, considered as a ancient market for our wines, a loyal market. It's our goal to reach you and to tell you, okay, Bordeaux is still very good. Our wines are some of the best made in the world. We are young. We are modern. We want to uh, to be in touch with you. It's not, Bordeaux wines are, are not that kind of wines you, you can't touch. You're, no, it's not just a name written I- I- in a book. We are here to meet you and to talk about wine and to share our wines with you and our passion in winemaking with you. Because wine is all about sharing afterwards. And as Bordeaux guys, I think we have this responsibility to cross the world and to tell you, okay, we we are also very happy with meeting you and to talk about our wines. Even if we consider beautiful wines are made somewhere else in the world. But we have to come back to you. This is very important to come back to you and to meet different kind of consumers. And I've been very, very impressed by the number, uh, the amount of women coming to our tastings, the amount of young people coming to our tastings. Uh, you know, this Tour des Dorives was composed by different chateaux from every part of Bordeaux. It's Chateau Aubahy, Pessac Léonien, Chateau Palmer. Um, in Margot, Ducru au uh, in Saint-Julien, Mouton Rothschild and Pichon Lalande uh, from Pauillac, and some wines of uh, Christian Mwex uh, in Pomerol and Saint-Emilion, like uh, Magdalene and Hosanna. All those people are very, very used to travel a lot, to travel a lot in the world to talk about wines. And we could say, we, we could figure that, we don't need to talk about our wines because the label are already fam- famous and we have reached the, the market yet since 40, 50 years. I think we are all very conscious that we have to do more and we have to, to meet different kinds of people, different kinds of, of uh, uh, consumers because this is the future of bottle Wines.
0: And what about the on-premier situation with sales? Is that helpful to you? Is, is that a hindrance to you in the market?
1: Well, I think that more than ever it's very helpful for us, for the wine network. What is the purpose? We're going to propose to you a new wine, which is still in barrel, because we, we, we still age in barrel, and you going to buy it cheaper than you could buy it in two or three years. If you I want to tell you, just trust in us. We're going to age it perfectly. We're going to age it very correctly. We're going to bottle it very consistently. You're going to buy it cheaper. And as for us, we're going to sell it before making, uh, preparing a new vintage in, in the vineyard. So it's a win-win strategy. And it's a good way, if you can taste the Empremeur six months after the harvest, it's a good way to create a network, a network of uh, a partnership between the producers, the distributors, then the consumers. And it's how Bordeaux has crossed some crisis and has crossed the centuries for years.
0: But is escalating prices an issue that you have to deal with in terms of finding a market for the
1: wines? Well, it's also our responsibility to find the, uh, the good price to make this emprimeur releasing something good and interesting for consumers. But this is the res- responsibility of each of us as uh, managers. Is it difficult to set a new price each year
0: to, to judge your own Situation dispassionately and say, "Okay, well, this is what it's worth this year." I mean, it's not something that every producer does in the
1: world. Yeah, you know? that's why we 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 we, uh, we work so closely uh, to negotiants, to brokers from Bordeaux, to uh, distributors here in the U.S. or in Asia, and uh, that's why I'm talking about network because it's a question of confidence between them and us. If I can melt a large number of figures to have a very precise idea of. Uh, what is the, the level of and the price of exchanges on the market? So it's a good way for me to determine, considering all those components, the right price of my label this very year. And what's the Asian market? like?
0: Not having traveled there myself, I'd be curious to know what the reception for the wines is in Asia. We
1: have talked a, a lot about Hong Kong, Singapore mainland China, but today, the, our Asian market is uh, the market in every country, above all in Southeast Asia. It's incredible. I mean, uh, uh, every country has discovered there a passion for our wines and for wine. I mean, uh, they probably, they learn very quick. I'm very impressed because they learn very quick and... Obviously, they are like you and me. I mean, if they have uh, appreciated and if they have liked drinking my wine, so they want to discover it, so they're going to buy former vintages and they're going to compare my wine with the wine of my neighbors and so on. And the passion in tasting wine is alive. And it's alive in traditional Europe. It's alive in America, North and South. It has no reason not to be in Asia. And uh, that's why our market is now the global market. It's the market for bottled wines is the whole world. And
0: so to take it back to the wine for a second, you have interest in Chateau de Pez and haute bouche which are in San Estef and which you had worked in that region before. But with pichon Lalande, it's in Pauillac. What was that change like for you to move from an estate
1: based in San Estef to one that's more classically Pauillac? When you make some wine, at the very moment of making wine, the blend, for example, or, or to determine the program of your pump-overs during vinification, It's very interesting to consider that when you're in Saint Estef, it's all about tannins, the how you can feel them. It's all about the tannic structure. You know that aromatically, you will have the expression of the wine later. When you're in Poyak, a bit south of Saint-Esteve, a few kilometers south of Saint-Esteve, it's already a question of balance between tannic structure and aromatic expression. Uh, That means that the ability of this terroir to reveal quickly the aromas of the wine is very interesting. So you have to be careful with managing both tannins and aromatic structure of the wine.
0: And we talked a little bit about percentages of Merlot to Cabernet, and that's interesting in the Pichon Lalande case because it's historically known to have a fair amount of Merlot for the area, but in 2013, which is your first full vintage there, 100% Cab in the Pichon Lalande. How did that happen, and why did it happen?
1: 2013, for a first vintage to to manage there was not the easiest, but... um... It's a good way to learn quick. Difficult vintage. Yeah, very difficult. Because the, the war year, in terms of climate, was awful. I don't very well know the, the, the weather man. I think I should replace him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because we got a lot of rain, quite showers to say the truth, during the, the whole vegetative cycle, above all during the flowering. And we had a very, very bad flowering, above all in the Merlot. So that means that originally the, uh, the yields produced in the Merlot were very, very low. Um, by chance, we had a nice, uh, a nice summer. So it helped us to, um, to ripe the, the grapes and so on. When we reached the very moment of the harvest, uh, we could figure that we got quite no mellow. And the only we have produced were not that complex and were not that elegant. And we, we considered we could not use them for uh, for the blend of the first label. You know, we, we make um, our blend sessions in December, January, following the, um, the harvest. Um, so we have... Something like thirty or forty different wines to taste, and we taste them all blind. It's a good way to to keep very uh, objective during the tasting. And after a few after a few sessions, we revealed the origins of each wine, and we could figure that it was we have made a hundred percent cab blend. If I should say it's a blend, and. Um, well, we looked at each other and said, "Okay, let's do it again tomorrow to be really sure." Because, uh, as you said, in the past we have used a, a lot of Merlot in some vintages. For some vintages, not all, but for some of them, some of them we have used a lot. And um, afterwards, after one, two, three, four more sessions, I assume to say, "Okay, we are in Bordeaux. We don't have a recipe to apply every year. Every year we have a new baby to make, and this year." It's a cab year, definitely. And we won't use Merlot or Petit Verdot if we have this feeling that they will disbalance the blend. So afterwards, we have made a few, two to three different blends to, to have a proposal. And our, at the end of the day, we have, we have chosen the 100% cab we have made. And um, now the wine is made, the pressed wine is integrated into wine. So what is done is done. This is... Our new baby, and we are very happy with it, even if we have made a very low production, because we will have produced five times less first label compared to 2012. But this is the best that we could make. Uh, I would be happy to to taste it with you in a few years, and um, we'll have an an idea on the evolution of this wine, which is uh, unusual, I must say, but afterwards, this is our 13. Because I don't think that's happened before, where it's been
0: all Cabernet. Even a vintage like '96, I believe, still had some Merlot in it, which is yes, known yes, as yes.
1: a Cab Year. You're right. You're right. Um, but I mean, it's the 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 question is not a um, it's not a question of figures of or of amount. Afterwards, we have to make the best wine.
0: And you were working in a new cuverie in 2013.
1: Yes, we have. Well, the, the former cuvery have been crushed down in 2012, and we have used the new one for this very 13 vintage. It's a very tr- interesting project because uh, it's a good way to improve different skills in the winemaking. First of all, it's a revolution for us. It's not for the, the world of viticulture, but we're going to use boxes to make the harvest. Uh, first time ever with this 13 Vintage, then... Small boxes. Small boxes, boxes, yeah, very small boxes. Then we have different volumes of vats. That means 50, 70, 85, 100, 120, 150 hectoliters vats. All stainless steel. Yes, stainless steel. And um, it's a good way to vinificate each plot separately or each part of plot, part of terroir separately and God knows it was that useful for the 13th vintage, as you understand, with very low yields. Why? Because before, in the ancient cuvery we used just 240 hectolitres vats. So that means you have to pick up five to eight hectares large part of the vineyard when yields are very low. You can't fill such big vats, or that means you're going to melt everything. You're going to mix all the plots, um, of for the same varietal. so no way for considering a uh, selection, strict and precise selection. Uh, so, and the, the third point is that we use conical stainless steel vats, so they get bigger at the bottom. Exactly, bigger at the bottom,
0: and um, that was something that was kind of pioneered by Delma, right? Conical stainless steel.
1: Yes, exactly, and uh, it's a good way to make uh, a good extraction of uh, the components of the grapes, but. Be careful, it's a good way. It's a way for the over-extraction. So you have to to make very precise and short pump-overs to extract the components of the berries and above all the tannins of seeds without over-extracting them. Because when you over-extract the juices, you also over-extract the things you don't want to. So, well, we have learned how to use this new cuvery in 2013. Now we hope and we're waiting for a more generous 2014, that's for sure. Because Pichon-Lalande
0: also has parcels across the border in St. Julien because it's located on the border of Pauillac and St. Julien and you have St. Julien parcels. So are you are fermenting those separately and then kind of blending them in with the Pauillac parcels? Well,
1: actually, the, the reality is that the border beti- between the two towns, Pauillac and St. Julien, is not exactly the same as the border between two appellations oh, so Poillac and Saint-Julien so that means that our vineyard is in Poillac but we have a few plots which are in the town of Saint-Julien but in the Poillac vineyard if that makes sense I see okay okay the border is not exactly the administrative border so Got it. that's uh,
0: that's probably very French <laughs> And if your goal at Montrose and Saint-Esteve was to refine the tannins and make a wine that was big but more accessible younger, what is the goal at Pichon
1: Lalonde now that you're there? Consistency. Consistency. I think um, we have a lack of consistency between the mid-90s and mid or late 2000s. Because
0: Parker's on record is saying he was kind of disappointed with the mid-90s from Pichon Lalonde. And
1: uh, for some reason, I mean, I, I don't know why, uh, for some reason, Pichon Lalande has made beautiful bottles in this very period. I always like the 96. And 96. Then the, uh, the 98 is a good wine. Uh, the 2003 is very good wine. Some of those bottles are very good, but it's not that consistent. And I have this feeling that even if the reputation of the growth is made on the basis of a very feminine style very merlot and so on. The beautiful vintages of Pichon Lalande to me, are very Poyac style. And I think we have to, to find this balance during the, the vinification. Once again, I talk about balance, it's now the fourth fifth time during the... the but it does the seem beginning be be the a key word you, for so many. Yeah, the balance uh, between the aromatic expression of the growth but the sharpness, the straightness of the tannic structure. Everything is there. And once you want to reach this sharpness, that makes sense, sharpness of the tannic structure, the fact that precision, if, maybe. precision, precision of the tannic structure, that, mean, that means that you have to be rigorous at every step of the process. Thus, you will get the balance between the aromatic expression and the tannic structure. You will get the precision in the tasting, you will get this large mid palate during the tasting, but the length of the tasting. Because if you want to overextract, you got a very large mid palate, but the length is not that long. Precise the finish is shorter.
0: Because the tannins kick in e- and the finish. Exactly.
1: Short. So we have to, to be probably more rigorous on every step of the of the vine growing, of the winemaking and so on. But what
0: might we expect in the future from Pichon Lalande in terms of stylistically? Might we see more Cabernet in future years or less Cabernet or what will happen in the future?
1: Well, I want to be very careful with uh, how I'm going to replace a few plots of Merlot by Cabernet Sauvignon. Because we're going to replace some, considering that when you have a plot with a beautiful gravelly soil, big gravel soil, the cabs are better adapted on it. And sometimes we have Merlot already planted. In the so groundwork. we're going to wait for a few more years before replacing them. And every year we have to, to take out two to three hectares of vine. Then we wait two, three more years for the soil to rest. And then we replant. Um, but and I think we, we, we're going to decrease a bit the amount of Merlot from 35% Planted in the vineyard to something like 30%. But, I, you know, this is a responsibility to, to replace because when you replant, you made it for, for the next generations afterwards. So, I don't want to change radically, uh, drastically, the, the style of, of the wines made there. But we're going to increase a bit the amount of Cabernet Sauvignon.
0: Why would you need to replant a few hectares every year, two to three hectares every year? Is that because of vine age or production level?
1: or Both. Both. And the, um, uh, the oldest is the vine and the less it produces. So this is the first reason. And then we have, you know, we have made in 2008 a map, a geological map of the vineyard. And now with more precision, we have a more precise idea of what we want to plant on which part of the of terroir. So uh, it's a good, a good way to improve. I mean, we adapt the kind of soil with the roots and with the vine. Then, this is also terroir, you know, uh, with the proximity to the river, with the human labor, the, how we have adapted the vine to the piece of terroir as a way to, to help this terroir to reveal itself. And our job is to help it, I should say, we help him as a person, but we help it to reveal itself through the wines.
0: And do you have consultants at Pichon Lalon?
1: We have two consultants uh, who are Eric Boissonneau and Denis Dubourdieu. Oh, okay. So you're old professor. My old professor. Does he remember you from school? Uh, yeah, hope so, and <laughs> 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 not in a too bad way. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. We 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 are in touch.
0: And he's more known in some ways for white ferments, for fermenting white wines in stainless steel. Well, um,
1: we consult him um, for many many things, and uh, also for the vine growing, and he has very good ideas uh, considering white or red vine afterwards. But no white ever at Pichon-Lalas? No. That's, I don't think we have thought about it, but um, you give me an idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the average production today
0: at pichon Law in terms of bottles? I know 13 was very low for
1: you. Yeah, yeah. 13 was very low. It's an accident, I should say, an ag- accident because of agriculture, because of, well, for some reason. Uh, we produce something like Twelve to 15,000 cases of first label, and quite the same for the second label, 12,000 cases of second label.
0: So really, by Bordeaux standards, it's not the biggest estate. It's not that big. It's sort of medium.
1: Size. Yeah, it's a medium. Yeah, yeah. The, we try to reach the 45 to, um, to 50 hectoliters an hectare every year. So then it depends on the nature and everything. But uh, this is the goal we reach. So you altered the regime of pumping over
0: at Montrose? Did you do that again at Pichon Lalande? Did you take a look at how many times you pump over
1: during the fermentation cycle? But but you know, that's not a, a revolution. It's just the fact that you have to adapt yourself every year to the kind of to the richness of the the grapes you have and. It's the relation between the skins of, of the grapes, the juice, and uh, how you can feel things. So even at Montrose, I, I did not have uh, revolutions, anything. But it's just the fact that it was uh, every year a big discussion with the cellar master to try to uh, to find the best way to make good wines. I mean, and this is the same at Pichon aland or or uh, anywhere in in, in Bordeaux. Each of us has to adapt itself to its own property, to uh, the quality of the harvest.
0: A lot of times, when people talk about Pichon Lalande, they talk about an elegant and feminine wine, maybe because it had a a female representative a couple of times, actually, but famously during the 80s and late 70s and early 90s, but also probably because of how the wine tasted, because of more more Merlot. Are we going to see a continuation of the what might be called feminine style of a Apolliac in the future? Or if we do this interview in 20 years, are we going
1: to look back to a change to a bigger style, a more masculine style of Pichon Alain? I don't think it's a question of being feminine or masculine. And uh, the wines, I'm not sure the wines will be bigger for two reasons. First, because this is not my ambition to make big wines as you, we can imagine. How they could be. I mean, over everything, over extracted, over okay, over what you want. Um, this is the best way to annoy and to, to avoid the notion of terroir. And this is not my culture. But considering that we want to use a bit more Cabernet Sauvignon and that we want to reach a more precise tannic structure, obviously, we won't talk about light of our charming, or very feminine wine. On the other hand, I want to tell you that the footprint of the terroir in the wines we produce is so important and I'm sure that the 100% cab I've made for this 2013 vintage can't taste the same as if Latour or Pichon Baron would have made the same blend. That's for sure. And that's uh, uh, you know why making it is a school of humility. And it's a good way to admit my own weakness compared to the terroir and the, the strength of terroir. Blind tasting, most of the people I've tasted this 100% cab with couldn't figure it was. So this is the strength of, of terroir. And we have definitely to adapt ourselves to it, not the opposite.
0: Nicholas Goumaillou of Chateau Pichon Lalande, also Chateau de Pez and Chateau au Couchezor in Bordeaux. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Nicholas Goumaillou. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett.